We're back on the Tom Bernard Show. Sitting here with me, Doug Sprinthal. <laughs> the Walzer <laughs> Automotive Group. Walzer.com. Sorry, I couldn't resist. I was thinking of something else. Um, <laughs> sales season is upon us. I don't pitch. I don't like pitchy car ads, but there are times of the years uh, that are better to buy cars than others. And right now, manufacturers are pouring on end-of-the-year incentives. You can see all our deals at Walzer.com for all 25 brands in two fabulous states. That's all. I thought you it's all. had no, more. You like built up. You, you were coming to a crescendo there. I was no, expecting something. I came to a screeching halt. You did. I did. You did. You just because I want to talk about Letterman. No, you want to talk about Letterman. All right, we'll take the break then, ladies and gentlemen. That's Doug Sprinthal from Walzer, Walzer Automotive Group, Walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's been good. And how do they contact you? At, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Eartha Kid. Mm-hmm. That voice is silky, huh? Did you ever hear Madonna's version? She sounds oh, more like horrible. Betty Boop doing it. She can't oh, sing God, either. yeah. I hate that yeah. version. And that's the one they always play on the radio. Yep. No, they Madonna. play this one, too. You just catch more of the Madonna. I mostly gotta keep hear it, the Madonna yeah, one. Yeah, they got to keep it, you know, cycling through. Well, speaking of Stevie Nicks. Uh, and we I think we was, weren't. We were talking about Madonna. Well, I know, but we were talking about... <laughs> Bad Christmas songs. Uh-huh. Uh, the Stevie Nicks Silent Night. Oh is my God! Horrible. Does it sound like a goat? Oh yes. Pull it up. You've got to play that. Oh my God! It is so. It's it's truly no, one of the I, worst songs. Well, Shatner might be taking a shot at that rain right now, but it is one <laughs> of the worst. Maybe they do it as a duet. Oh. Silent it's night. Do you have it there, Andy? The Silent Night Stevie Nicks might be oh. one of the creepiest. I would love to play it to like minor uh, notes. Listen to this. Silent night. Why? At least Cindy Lauper did it for fun, right? I, and uh, I don't want to pick on Stevie uh, Nicks. I know people love her, and the people that love her are witches, and I don't need any bad mojo my way. she more number one hits than you and I do added up together, but she that's, can't, she that's can't true. sing. I mean, it's just... Uh, she can sing. She no, just has she a unique... People, I, you know, I appreciate people with a unique voice, but right. 
there are some, a lot there's of... some you have to realize you're like David Bowie knew his right. place. Yeah, right? exactly. There Bruce are a lot Springsteen of big musicians that knows his sing. place. This is Bob Dylan, you shouldn't have pulled Bob up. Bob Dylan couldn't even come close to singing. Actually, he he has a couple songs where he sings and he's okay, but really? the rest is very. Yeah, Lay, was, Lady Lay is a good song. Yeah, well, Nashville Skyline is a weird yeah. record because he was recovering from a bad motorcycle crash, and he puts out a country album. It doesn't sound like him at all. <laughs> and he sounds well, decent. And there's some great It's probably songs, his right? only opportunity to sound like something, someone different with all the crap they had to do to him. Yeah. I don't know. Did you... Uh, we you, have... Well, we do have our guest on the Our line. guest on the Great. Line. Scott Ryan is the author of 30-something at 30 in Oral History and Scott Luck Stories. He's the director of the documentary of Voyage to Twin Peaks, host of the Red Room podcast and managing editor of the Twin Peaks-themed Blue Rose magazine. He lives in Columbus, Ohio. And he's here talking with us about a new book, The Last Days of Letterman, The Final Six Weeks. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me on. Pleasure to uh, chat with you. I'm yeah, a huge fan of, of Letterman. I had a chance to see Letterman live once, and it was the first program after the death of Johnny Carson that he came back. And I got to sit wow, in Wow, f- that's a great one to see. Yeah, it that's was. a good one. And as he's performing his opening monologue, I turned to my friend Ken and I said, does he sound like he's kind of doing a Johnny Carson riff the way he's telling these jokes? And at the end of his monologue, he goes, I just want you guys to know that through all the time that I've been over here doing the show, Johnny Carson sent in like five to ten jokes a week. Really? And, and he goes, that entire monologue showing you how timeless his comedy is are the jokes I've collected over all the years. Wow. So he was telling all these jokes that still hit, and that was really kind of powerful, but that was the first episode back after the death of Johnny Carson, and I'll never forget it. Amazing. Uh, and Letterman is... Yeah, there's actually um, part in the book about that, because I interviewed two of Carson's writers, uh, Jim Mulholland and Mike Barry, and they went on to write for Letterman. So they, in the book, they walked through how all of that happened with uh, Johnny, and they would send Johnny a check for like $25 for every joke, and Johnny would rip it up and mail it back. Yeah, he was uh, a remarkable man, and, and the, the influence that he had on Letterman. And I'll tell you what, I grew up in the height of, of the Carson days and then the beginning of Letterman. And I remember the irreverence of staying up late. You know, my parents oh, would yeah. think I was in bed, and I would get up and I'd watch Letterman. And, man, that show just, every bit of it I loved. Every version of Letterman shows, and I even enjoy his, his new stuff over on Netflix now. That guy just has uh, an amazing charisma and humor about him i i he's sorely missed i think on, on nighttime tv now yeah because there really is no more discussion on tv and that was one of yeah. letterman's strong suits if he brought a guest on and they actually had a discussion which was good to see one of the one of the things i always appreciated about him is he's got I think phenomenal musical taste, and he mm-hmm. brought some really unknown bands onto the show that that really helped launch their careers. It's always been a, ple- a treat to see who he'd uncover. I, and I love the way he he had those natural reactions to really uncomfortable moments. When Dr. Ruth would start talking about <laughs> masturbation, and he would get up from his desk and like start shrugging it off and walk off the set. I mean, you just—that's the kind of stuff that was. It was so brilliant to watch him uh, kind of blossom and unfold before us over the years of watching that show. You, you focus on the final 28 telecasts of The Late Show uh, with this. Why that particular segment of his career? 
Well, I thought that if I tried to do a book on all of Letterman, it was going to get to be too messy. And so I wanted to really tighten the lens. And I felt like looking at the final six weeks would really show you what his entire career was because he brought so many of the famous guests back, like Michael J. Fox or George Clooney, Tom Waits. I mean, just a ton of people. And his his ability to kind of... Um... I, do you think it was because he was more like the everyman? Uh, he had that Carson-esque ability as well, I thought. Well, you know, what uh, Cheryl Zellickson was one, the music booker for the show, and she described Letterman as endlessly curious. And it wasn't something that I had thought about before, but in retrospect, that makes such a good interviewer. And I think that was what he brought. He was curious about what you were doing. And if you think of the many times you would go off script and, you know, be asking them some question that they can't answer and the staff was running around trying to find it, those were the good parts of Letterman. Right, and he surrounded himself with an amazing cast of characters and, and an ensemble. And, and with that camaraderie he had with Paul Schaefer, you know, I mean, many have tried and failed, I think, in what they were able to do that this guy made seem so effortlessly. Uh, Don, what what was some of the most surprising aspects of that last run of shows that you uncovered when you were doing the research for this book? Well, I think it was how much people loved the days. I, I ended up interviewing about 25 of his staff members. Most of them had never given an interview before. And at first, they were sort of reluctant to talk. And then what you sort of learned was they felt about Dave in the exact way that you're describing. And I think he had this ability to cultivate loyalty that, again, in any industry, let alone the television industry, is very, very rare. You know, there was a lot said about the ending of Carson's career and that kind of buildup. Did you get that same sense when you were doing the research for this book, I mean, and, and looking back at the way pop culture and media responded to the end of, of Letterman's career, do you think he got his due and he got the kind of adulation that he deserved when he wrapped up his career? I do. I think that they had said that no one said no to coming on, and you take a guest like Adam Sandler, he doesn't come out till like 1220 that night. And they said, no one complained and said, oh, I got to be the first guest or I got to be on here. I mean, they just wanted to share with Dave and thank him for the career he offered. Um, the director, Jerry Foley, did say that when they wondered what to do, they would wonder, what would Johnny do? And that was their standard, was to try to match Carson's send-off. How much of... of do you think how much of, of the um, bitterness was there about not getting a shot at, at the Tonight Show? Or do you think part of that was just played up on his part as, you know, uh, just fodder for the show and stuff to have fun with? I don't think there was any bitterness about it. In fact, what I learned was all of those jokes were written by the Tonight Show writers, um, especially like when Conan was going through what he had to go through with, with Leno stealing from him. Uh, they were the ones that were writing all those jokes. It wasn't even Dave 
that was doing that. Now Letterman loved telling those jokes. Right. But I think it was mostly fodder, uh, not any real hard feelings. The creativity that this guy presented on the show, how much of it, as you're saying, there's a lot going on behind the scenes and these, these great jokes were being written by others. How much of what we saw on screen was Dave just being Dave as opposed to Dave you know, being the puppet behind other people's imagination? Well, they said that everything went through Dave. There was nothing that he didn't approve. But then also, I would talk to these writers who would work all day on a skit. And then right before Letterman's going to step on stage, she saw a video of his intern jumping over a table. And they cut the whole comedy skit and they played that. Because Dave thought it was funny, this guy jumping over a table. Uh, That is Letterman to me, is just reacting in the moment. In um, doing the interviews with all of the people involved, and, and were you able to actually interview Letterman about the, the this last segment of his major career? I did not talk to Letterman or Paul Schaefer um, because the key to the book are the people that are working to send them off. So it's not that I would have told, hey, Dave, stop bothering me. I don't want you in the book. <laughs> I mean, I, I would have, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I would have sat down with Dave. But I never asked anyone for him uh, because I felt I was trying to be respectful, and I figured if Dave wanted to talk to me, you know, he knew about the book because they're all still friends. But I don't think you'll miss hearing from Letterman in the book because you really get a sense of who he is through these people who worked for him, some of them for 35 years. Well, that's what I was going to say. Was there reluctance on the part of any of these people to come forward? Were they afraid of, of repercussions oh, or, yeah. or issues? Uh, I don't know that they were afraid of uh, repercussions, <laughs> but one of my favorite interviews was with uh, Sheila Rogers. She was the booking agent for, I don't know, 25 years. The first thing she said to me when I talked to her was, I'm regretting this already. <laughs> and I thought it was going to be a, a fun interview. But by the end of the interview, she thanked me for it because I think at the point where I had talked to them, they really hadn't looked back at what they had done. And I think you get a sense of that as the book goes on because you get to know these people and their jobs. And then you realize that they're, you know, they, they basically just got fired after years and years of working. And so it's a subtext throughout the book that is sort of surprising. Were you... Um, Man, this book sounds good. I might, I might buy it. Yeah, you should. It sounds like it'd be a great... And, and I love... Yeah, are, you yeah. gonna, are you going to have it available yeah. on audiobook by any chance? We haven't yet. Uh, we're looking into it. If anyone out there wants to contact me on how to do that, I'd love it because um, this is the first book in my own publishing company. So we're, we're baby steps. But yeah, we would. We will try. We're working on it. Yeah, because I love. Uh, see, I love the entertainment books. That's what I listen to on my long drives. I love. I love listening to these stories, and I can't get enough of the autobiographies and behind the scenes mm-hmm. stuff on this. And especially when you look at somebody that had such an impact, like Letterman did in late night, and and that says something because there were a lot of really amazing late night hosts through time, and to have Johnny Carson, and then be the closing act kind of for Johnny Carson at the late aspect of the night and to still make such an impact in such a, a different groundbreaking way. 
that really kind of speaks to the genius of what he was able to create. And sadly, I think we'll likely all live long enough that we'll have to explain to young people what late night talk shows were all about. Probably, yeah. Because they seem to be fading, and maybe that's maybe that's a little bit of get off my lawn because I'm getting older. But it's uh, no. it's different than it was. Oh, totally, yeah. Even it was. It's even different than it was 15 years ago. Yeah. Did you find anything when you were when you were looking this up? Was there any point where in those last six weeks, Letterman questioned this decision to walk away? Not really. Uh, I think he mockingly did a couple times on air, like Jerry Seinfeld, when Jerry's on, he asked Dave why he did it, and Dave kind of jokes and says, I don't know, I think I've made a huge mistake. (laughs) But I think he really was ready to move on, and I think he's happy with his decision. And as much as, I mean, I watched Dave for 28 years every day, I'm glad he left, too, because it's nice that he's not around to have to deal with where we are now in late-night TV, where you're trying to do 30-second memes and Snapchat yep, or right. whatever. Now I'm saying get off the get yeah. my lawn. <laughs> Scott Ryan, thank you so much. The book is called The Last Days of Letterman, The Final Six Weeks. We'll have a link up to that on our website. Stay tuned. We've got more coming your way. I'm Dave Schrader, and this is The Tom Bernard Show. A program that benefits the homeowner and not the realtor? Do you want a guaranteed offer on your home? Hey, it's Tom with my realtor, Chris Lindahl, who has some exciting news to share. Hey, Tom, we are super excited to announce our guaranteed offer program. Here's how it works. If you qualify, we will guarantee you an offer on your house within 48 hours, which means you could be closing in three weeks. No staging, no cleaning, no decluttering, and of course, no open houses. This is your hassle-free way to sell your home. If you qualify for the program, you will get a competitive offer in 48 hours, period. Sounds like a stress-free way to sell your home. It is, Tom. Some homeowners want the convenience to be able to sell their home quickly without going through the stress of showings, open houses, and so many more headaches, especially if they found their dream home and need to sell fast. You do need to qualify for this program, but that's quick and convenient as well. To see if you qualify for the guaranteed offer program from Chris Lindahl Real Estate, go to chrislindahl.com right now or call 763-401-SOLD. Once again, that's chrislindahl.com, Chris with a K. If you're tired of feeling frustrated because your clothes don't fit like they used to, then Nutramost is for you. Thanks to the Sheehy brothers and staff at Nutramost in Plymouth, I am down 92.5 pounds. The Nutramost program is amazing. I lost over 40 pounds during each of my first two 40-day rounds. You can have great success just like me because Nutramost is customized for each individual person, and the staff at Nutramost will be there for you every step of the way. Start your weight loss journey today and let Nutramost help change your life. Give yourself this wonderful gift or give this program as a present. Nutramost guarantees that you lose 20 pounds or more. Nutramost helped me change my life and they can help you too. Call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. Oh. oh, is this simply having... Can you please just stop this song No, we're right talking now. about bad Christmas music. I know you oh. hate this song. <laughs> Everyone hates this song. Oh, my God. Sounds like something my kids are playing. It's like I know. MIDI, right? Like the <laughs> early 1980s and yeah, 90s it MIDI It totally crap. sounds like something you would hear in like a computer game from or 1987. Keyboard so this actually illustrates the greatness of the Beatles. Because this is one of the songwriters' view of Christmas. 
And then you have John Lennon. And so this is yeah. Christmas, and what have we done? Did George ever do a Christmas song? No, he was too into Harry Krishna. Yeah. Oh, well, I he, love he did do uh, My Sweet Lord. Yeah. Which was kind of playing into the Christianity. He actually wrote a lot of very right. religious songs. Mm-hmm. Beware of Darkness, My Sweet Lord, all that sort of stuff. They're just did little. Ding dong, ding dong? No, not ding dong, ding dong. <laughs> that wasn't much of a Christian tune. <laughs> Ding dong, ding dong. Uh, a little bit later on, we'll be joined by Thomas, uh, Mike Thomas Payne Moore promoting his book, uh, Payne, How We Dismantled the FBI in Our Pajamas. We'll be doing that in a, in a few minutes. Uh, Tom Bernard is out and will be back with us Monday. He had uh, surgery today. And uh, pretty He's having a second heart put in, just in case. <laughs> second heart. An emergen- emergency hemorrhoidectomy. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he was, uh, and he's in surgery right now? Do we know? Have we had an update? Uh, is he I doing... I think he might be done by now. Okay. Check TMZ. They yeah. probably have an update. <laughs> no mm. kidding. And uh, Tom will be back with you guys Monday. He's, he's in surgery today. He'll be taken tomorrow on the weekend to recuperate. Our thoughts and prayers go out to Tom and the family, and uh, we will we'll keep you guys updated on what's going on with that tomorrow. All right. We've got a couple of other uh, weird stories I want to cover here. Um, an Apple Watch told a 46-year-old man that he was having an irregular heartbeat, and it was right. Huh. Yeah? When Ed Dentel updated his Apple Watch on Thursday night, he didn't expect it to upend his weekend, much less change his life. The 46-year-old communications consultant from Richmond, Virginia, does taekwondo with his family three times a week, bikes and skis frequently, and had no history of heart problems. See, and honey, you keep trying to get me to exercise. I read all these stories. These people that are in great health keep dropping dead. Well, wear your problems. Fitbit, then you'll know. Fit, no, because look, then you're alerted to problems. If I don't know about them, guys, I have guys, no problems. We're, we're on the air. <laughs> oh, sorry. One uh, thing I do notice about that kind of thing is it's always like, despite the fact that he spends 20 hours a day sprinting, it's like, well, maybe that's why his heart is so messed up. <laughs> is it like, it's like give it a break John, every John once Belushi in a while. John Belushi with the uh, with the cereal commercial where he's got the cigarette. Yeah. And he's, he's what was that? That was the. Uh, Olympics deal. I don't remember. What I remember was the name of the cereal? Blow, but right. That was a different commercial. Well, that was the one where was the cereal. Little chocolate was it donuts? No, it was little chocolate donuts. Yeah. That's what it was. And he's eating the bowl of little chocolate <laughs> donuts. of former Olympians. But he's smoking, <laughs> smoking the cigarette. He said he'd installed the software update with uh, the electrocardiogram app to play around with. The I application on the launch sounded mm-hmm. off right away with the atrial, atrial fibrillation. Yes, I have that. Not a something. A lot of people uh, do. Not something I've ever heard of, but since I'm in pretty decent health and never had a problem before, I didn't give it much thought. I figured something was glitchy, so I set everything down, turned it in for the night, Dentel told the ABC News. My watch said I had AFib, so I ignored it. On Friday morning, over breakfast with his seven-year-old daughter, he put his watch back on. Right away, AFib, so I shut everything down and turned it back on to try it again. Same result, same result, same result. Well, I I can tell you the last time I found out I was going to be a dad, we went through four pregnancy tests. I, I sat there watching each Just one. Just in case. Thinking, no, this, let's check no. the expiration date on this one. <laughs> oh, my God. Same result, same result, same result in my life, too. He, uh, he said he asked his wife to try. Hers came back normal. Twice. I put it on my left wrist on top, AFib. I put it on my left wrist on the bottom, AFib. I switched to my right He's wrist. not much same of a thing. scientist, is he? So starting to get a little bit of alarm here. Uh, atrial fibrillation, commonly called AFib or AF is a specific kind of irregular heart rhythm. If left untreated, it can weaken heart muscles and increase the risk of stroke. Strokes, yep. Yeah, Dental drove to a nearby urgent care 
The parking lot was full. The waiting room was crowded. So he almost left. Oh, my God. This guy is stupid. So I, here's, <laughs> yeah. here's my AFib story. This is when I realized that my marriage probably wasn't as strong as I thought. Mm-hmm. It was 14 years ago, Sunday, 2 or, two or 3 o'clock in the morning on mm-hmm. Sunday. I wake up and my heart's going boom, 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 So that had a great beat to it. Going from 150 down to like 2 and all right. over the place. Yikes. And I automatically think that I'm dying. Right. So I wake my wife up and she goes... Uh, you better get to the hospital. Give me a call when you know what's going on. It goes back to sleep. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I drove to Woodwinds Hospital, which is what they tell you to do. Don't call 911 if you think you're having a fatal heart attack. Right. They'll they drive, drive, take yourself. drive yourself. Yeah. I get there, and what I did learn is that you can get service right away. And they say, sir, how can we help you? Well, I think I'm having a heart attack. You get your own chair. They oh. get you nitroglycerin. <laughs> they get you in a special room. They start to... So anyway, I oh, yeah. found out that I had AFib, and they, I said, what should I do? Well, I'll see your doctor. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to need to have one because I haven't gone in six years. And I said, well, this guy's pretty good. And I went to see him, and I, I love this guy. Dr. Cunningham, if you're listening, you were my favorite doctor ever. The guy was just totally insane. So this is what he tells me. He goes, well, you got AFib, and uh, I think that uh, your overall health's pretty good, and we want you to start you on some meds, and that should really help, uh, and I wouldn't worry about it too much. But. That's not to say you're not, you can't drop dead in the parking lot on the way out of here, because that does happen. Well, at least blunt. I'll tell you one more Dr. C story. So I was a few years later, I'm getting some routine blood work done, mm-hmm. and he goes, yeah, you should be fine. I'll call you with the results when I get them. So it's Sunday afternoon, the phone rings, and Doug Sprinthal, yeah, yeah, this is Doug. Uh, Dr. Cunningham here, and I got your test results, and oh, crap. I'm like, what, what? He goes, oh, no, the Vikings fumbled. You're fine. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Mm. Oh, he, was, he was the best. Aww. See, you and I, we have dueling uh, bad spouse, ex-spouse uh, deals. Uh, when I was, you know, this is only a two-hour podcast. Right. <laughs> We're coming into the last couple of segments. I was, uh, when I suffered my uh, near-fatal almost heart attack seven years ago, same thing. I woke up Mother's Day, and my chest is burning, my arms hurt, and I'm thinking, well, I lay weird. I sleep weird. I always kind of tuck my arm in like a chicken wing. My arm's always So when I wake asleep, up, I'm like, oh, my left arm really hurts. But So I get up, and I take a shower. I lay back down, still not feeling good. My ex is downstairs with the kids. And then I text her and I go, hey, come on upstairs. I think I might be having a heart attack. She's like, well, I'm busy right now. I'll be up in a little bit. Hmm. And then I was like, <laughs> all right. So I go into the well, bathroom and, and I get an aspirin. Her, I chew an in aspirin. In her defense, let me ask you a couple of questions. How severe is your cold when you get them? Is that like a fatal, th- I can't move because my nose is plugged not up? Always. Some guys are like that. What are you looking at me for? Not <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> He's got the man flu. <laughs> so anyway, I take an aspirin. I lay back down for a little bit. And then I'm like, all right, I'm going in. So I, I say, I'm going to go to the hospital. Uh, she's like, well, I'll drive you in. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll drive myself in because, again, I'm an right. idiot man. She, no, 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 I'm driving you. So we spent the entire time fighting. I think I'm having a heart attack. And she's just nitpicking me over the stupidest things on the way there. And we're battling it out in the car. So bad that when I get out of the car, I go, go home. She's like, no, I'm coming in. I said, if you come in, I'm going to tell them you've been beating me and you shoved me down a flight of God, stairs. this is hysterical. That would make a great skill. Oh, God. And I did it. So I go into the hospital, like my blood pressure is right. through there. And I come walking in and I'm like shaking and twitching, not out of the pain. Because you're pissed at your And I go, <laughs> I think I'm having a heart attack. And they're like, boom, there's chairs yeah, and yeah. IVs and pulling me in the back. And. Uh, but that was one of those those weird moments. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, again, I spent that day alone in the hospital because uh, 
Yeah, the ex was psychotic. It was well. At least she cared about you. I mean, mine rolled over and went to sleep. (laughs) Mine did. That's a little passive aggressive. I think yours rolled over and went to sleep. Mine got in the car and then harassed me the entire drive to try to push that heart right over the edge. So she's not from the Midwest, then, right? Uh, She is. Oh, really? She sounds like an East Coast girl. She's from Minnesota via Chicago to California back to Minnesota. Okay, so she picked it up for somewhere along the road. It was brutal. It was brutal. But hey, I, we're both alive, and we and we're on I, our final wives. I suffered. I suffered a, a near fatal, almost heart attack. He said, "You you suffered a heart attack without having a heart attack." I have a hole in my heart, so a blood clot slipped through the hole in my Ooh, heart. Wow! And he goes, "Dave, you have two ways to go. Ninety nine point nine percent of the time, the heart pumps it and shoots it straight to the brain, and this thing's yeah, a widow maker." Dead. Yeah. He goes somehow. Your blood is so lazy. <laughs> it just kind of <laughs> fell over into a smaller artery and was like, I got to rest here for a little bit. So he shows me this picture. So it's, it's like an old guy having sex. Right? Yes. So he shows me the picture of the artery, and it's dark uh, dark gray, and there's just this real thin line of black. He goes, that's the blood flow that was still getting through. If it had blown up a little bit more, you would have had the full-blown heart attack. Mm-hmm. He goes, so all we had to do is run a hose up in there and suck the blood clot out, and, and you're okay. Your blood's lazy. Yeah, boy, your blood is lazy. The heart's trying to pump it out, and the blood's like, hey, you know. I just sit over here. Thank God for McRib sauce. I think yeah. that's what weighted it down. It pooled at the bottom of that clot and just kind of held her down. They asked George Burns what it was like to have sex as a 90-year-old, and he goes, it's like playing pool with a rope. <laughs> Trying to put a marshmallow in a piggy piggy bank slot. Oh, God. Uh, Anyway, so this guy eventually gets to the hospital. He goes, I thought this is silly. I've got meetings. I've got stuff to do. I don't have time to sit here and wait, he recalled. But I looked down and checked the watch one more time. Still says AFib. Long and short of the story story is that he went in thinking he was a hypochondriac. And uh, they did the technician work. EKG came back saying... Yes, you have AFib. This machine just saved your life. So, obviously, you want to get that for your. For I mean, your all you iPhone. have to do is just feel your pulse, and if it's not going, yeah, to if it goes all over the place, then, then there you, you go. Have AFib. AFib. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. See, I, I grew up with WPW, Wolf Parkinson White Syndrome. So I could go out and jog and come back, and I'd have an elevated heart rate, but it'd be fine. I could be sitting here with you, and then I reach for my coke can, and all of a sudden, you could literally see my shirts just start to oh, go. Oh, really? And it I was, didn't know that was a real thing. I thought this it, was maybe the setup for a long joke. No, no, it's dead serious. So what happens is basically as the heart pumps and the, the electric waves come through and tell you what's going to go on, your heart has a basically like a, a built-in microchip mm-hmm. that when the pulse comes in and says, let's go 190 minutes or beats a minute, the heart goes, no, we go 50. And it came flying through, and it would just surpass, surpass it. So it had created its own pathway around my chip. So they had to go in and actually burn. Oh yeah, that's that what they pathway. do to AFib too, and they wanted yeah. to do that to me. And I said, "So this is the deal where you take a catheter and you run it up your thigh, and then you just blast the backside of my heart." Uh, she goes, "Yeah, our techniques have gotten a lot better in the <laughs> last ten years." I said, "Do you think they'll continue to improve? Because I'm willing to take meds until you really." Did you Did you take? Are you on meds? Yeah, yeah. Just so I had the ablation surgery. Yep. And they go, we don't put you completely under. We put you in twilight. Oh, because they You're have fine. to make sure. Right. Yeah. So they lay me down, and I'm like, they're count backwards, you know. So I'm like five, four. right? <laughs> so I go in under for this for the surgery, and um, they have to stimulate the heart into an into an attack, right? To see what's going on. The so other they, part of the operation, they, they just stimulate enjoy. it. So here, I, this is the memory I have. I remember counting down, and all of a sudden, 
my eyes springing open and I'm on the surgery table and I go, oh, God, this hurts. And I remember the doctor looking over at the anesthesiologist going, he's not supposed to do that. <laughs> so they like hit me with something and boom, I'm out again. And then I wake up to the feel oh, of, the, oh, of the catheter never coming having out of my thigh. The catheter, Paul, yeah. Uh, as it's burning a, a roll, but you know what, it's so quick, you, you have it, you're drugged, Doug. It's well worth it. <laughs> but they pull it out and that woke me up again out of a dead coma. Uh, that that was enough to to soar me back into the world of reality, and uh, yeah, so that was a lot of fun. So I had, <laughs> had that go home and take a quiet nap. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I we should have surprisingly a number of things in common. Yes, we I. do. So yeah. you'll appreciate our, this. Our so beautiful, was, luxurious, I, wavy hair. I, so, I I celebrated my ninth wedding anniversary with Sarah uh, yes. in October. Congratulations! And so on my card, I said, "Happy anniversary, honey. I've never been married this long before." <laughs> You are a she romantic. Laughed. She laughed. It's true. You are a romantic. Honey, yeah. see, this is what you get to look forward to. This yep. is what I'll, we'll be like. <laughs> well, we only have a minute and a half, but we have a caller who's calling in about AFib. Okay, caller, you're on the air. Hey, I'll make it quick. My husband had AFib, too. Doug, get the ablation surgery. <laughs> oh, no. You my, remember I tell you, my I, husband, I have, uh, my husband I, got it, and it fixed it. I only have... It did. It's been... The meds have worked really well. I have yeah. probably four, maybe five attacks a year. Oh, is that they last all? for about an oh. hour. You know, the cool thing is if you have the surgery, you, uh, you round it down to zero attacks a year. Okay. He is absolutely correct. And my yeah. husband did not wake up on the table. So yeah. that, that does not happen. All that stuff Dave was just talking about, that's just the well, that's thing. He's, he never had that anything that happen. Paranormal thing. He's got well, I also had it done... 18 years ago. Oh, so well, I'm you, sure they've stepped it up by exactly. now. Exactly. You had red hair when you well, were a kid. Red hair, uh, my gingers. What? I don't know. No, gingers need oh, more medications. Yeah. Oh, like okay. anesthesia yeah, that's actually true. and mm. pain meds. Well, that's why they kept looking down. <laughs> bald on top, they kept pulling back the sheet. I was wondering what they were looking for. Redhead, we need more. Who's your doctor? Bill Shatner? But, yeah. <laughs> no, Bill Cosby. It's okay. He had it done like five years ago. Just go ahead and do it. Okay. It's fine. You won't have any more attacks. Yeah. All right. It's well thank worth you. it. Just get it done. I wake up and I, no I'm not a back great, sleeper. Have, yeah. Thank you very much for weekend. calling in. Thank you. I, I'm laying on my back. I'm not a back sleeper. I wake up and I'm in so much pain from back sleeping. And they go, Well, the doctor said I can give you up to three ampules of, of morphine. I'm going to give you a half. I go, A half's not going to do me any. <clears throat> Uh, we got to take a break. We'll come back. More of the Tom Bernard Show. Tom Bernard here to tell you Priority Courier Experts has immediate openings for drivers looking for more. Priority drivers are independent contractors who set their own hours, start from their own driveways, and deliver local on-call parcels and freight, which means you're home for dinner every night, and you get paid weekly. Right now, Priority's driver-friendly lease-to-own program has brand-new dock trucks, flatbeds, curtain sides, and tractor trailers just waiting to be driven home. And Priority is also offering a $4,000 sign-on bonus to qualified drivers. So if you've got the skills, we can get you qualified to start driving a brand new truck in as little as three days. Calling all drivers. Come get the $4,000 sign-on bonus you deserve for all the knowledge and experience you bring to the delivery business. Call our fleet reps right now at 651-748-4477 or visit them online at Priority.com. Priority Courier Experts. Every time you call us, we deliver. 
Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry. This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Saber and Bryant, whatever it takes. But baby, it's cold outside. There's my wife stirring the pot. Everybody else is banning it. She just keeps playing it over and over again. I love this song. Every radio station that bans it, we have to make up for it by playing it. <laughs> but what? One radio station bans it, and it's been talked about ad nauseum for the last three weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to something exciting. How about this? Mike Thomas Payne Moore today serves as True Pundit's chief muckraker. Moore Payne previously worked for the FBI, White House, DEA, among other intel agencies and private concerns. He's a recipient of the coveted Gerald Loeb Award for Journalism and two-time Pulitzer Prize for Investigative Reporting nominee. Today he is slumming with us on the Tom Bernard Show. Must have lost uh, a bet. Talking about his book, Payne, How We Dismantled the FBI in Our Pajamas. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, how are you, Tom? I'm good. Uh, this is Dave. Tom's out, uh, had surgery today. He's in recovery right he, now. He's in recovery, doing well. I'm oh, Dave I hope Schrader. he's doing better. I hope he does all right. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you. We'll pass that on to him as well. Okay, uh, Dave, sorry. No, that that's perfectly fine. I know this was a surprise for all of us. But thank you uh, for joining in and uh, being a part of the show with us today. Uh, so talk to me about this. Uh, this This is insane. And I love the topic, how we dismantled the FBI in our pajamas. Uh <laughs> Tell me a little bit of the background on this. Well, we wrote a book. Uh, we started True Pundit a couple of years ago, uh, right before the 2016 election, kind of a new um, website, new news site, conservative news site. And we started focusing on FBI corruption and a lot of the stories that we were able to break, funneled, uh, I should say funneled down, but really funneled up to mainstream, mainstream media. And... Um, so that's been our focus, FBI corruption, Department of Justice corruption. And then we dovetailed that into a book a couple uh, month, a couple months ago, and the book is done really well. The book basically explains uh, part of my life, why I got involved in this, how I got involved in this. I used to work for these folks, and um, now I'm on the other side of the aisle, so to speak. Well, in, in your dealings with this, and, you know, I mean, were you aware of just how deeply rooted the corruption seemed to go? Well, I was part of it for a long time. You know, I was a contractor. We did a lot of work for these guys, a lot of black bag stuff we probably shouldn't have been doing. And uh, But we made so much money, Dave. I'll be honest with you, and I was so young, it really didn't pay attention to it until we got a little older and was able to discern that some of this stuff probably shouldn't have been doing. And um, so I guess uh, a good answer to the question is no. I didn't realize how bad or how deep it is, and it, um, it's crazy. It keeps getting, every day it's like, uh, it gets worse every day. There's another story or two stories out every day or every couple of days that says, whoa, you know. I think people are actually starting to think that um, they're losing their shock value. You know, these stories right. lose their shock value because it's been going on for so long, nothing seems to be getting done about it. 
and people are almost getting desensitized, if that makes any sense. Well, when you talk about just how corrupt the FBI and the, the Department of Justice really is, I mean, what was it that that really awakened this in you? What what was the moment that you realized this is severely broken and corrupt? This is beyond even what I could have thought was going on. Well, they kicked the door of my house in when I one morning um, and held my kids at gunpoint. They were 8 and 12 and my wife um, and got me out of bed. I mean, you read this stuff about Paul Manafort that they did to him. This is just out of their playbook and uh, just try to intimidate me and me down because I was looking into something that I shouldn't have been looking into at the time. That was a pretty good indication that um, the people I had been working for were probably worse than the people that they had me chasing. <laughs> so, uh, and since then, it's been kind of it was kind of downhill. I had a long battle with them, went on for eight years, and uh, after it was over, I said, "Let's go back into journalism where I started, and let's start exposing." Um, how bad it is at that point 2016 i had no idea how how crazy it is i still don't think we overall have an idea of how really bad it is i think we've only scratched the surface and i'm starting i'm starting to smell a rat here uh i'm starting to think that uh tom bernard is at home relaxing watching movies on video and just wanted me to do this in case the fbi is pissed off i'm i'm bringing you on to talk about this (laughs) you never know what's gonna happen Dave. you never know these guys (laughs) <laughs> uh, no, this is Daryl. Daryl Thompson. That's who you're talking oh, to. Daryl. Uh, okay. you, better, you, better, you better Uber home. <laughs> yeah, I will. Uh, uh, so you have all this going on. You start n- nosing around in something you shouldn't. They still have to have a reason for why they're coming to you, uh, theoretically. What What is the reason that they're there? Are they trying to implicate you in some nefarious scheme, or are they just unhappy that you're uncovering secrets? Well, they can basically do whatever they want. I mean, they really run the show. A lot of people don't realize it because they're used to watching TV and they think that by the way they watch these folks on TV and in the movies, this is how they operate, but it's not really how they operate. It's, it's hyped up and it's, it's a glorified um, you know, depiction, but they can do whatever they want. So if they want to harass you, they'll come into your house and they'll search your house and they'll look for anything they can find, whether it's cash or drugs or or anything, you know, and, and anything they could use against you to harass you. In my case, they found a bunch of hockey tapes, old hockey tapes that were 30, 40 years old that we were trading and selling online, like, you know, really vintage games that weren't copywritten. And they confiscated all those, and then they came after me for that. That way, so, you know, to But isn't the idea of work. our legal system that you have to have a reason to go in to begin with, not go in and then find a reason that then arrest you? I mean, that seems counterproductive and counterintuitive to what they're, you know, the, the whole justice system is about. I agree 100%. I agree 100%. <laughs> wow. That's terrifying that that's going on. So you have that experience hit you. Uh, why continue to press forward? I don't know. I guess it's because I'm Irish and maybe partially stupid. <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate no, the I, honesty it's, on it's that. We're just stubborn Irish, you know. We're not getting in from Philadelphia. We grew up, um, if somebody punches you in the face in the schoolyard, you either plot their demise at a later recess or you handle it right there, you know. So, I mean, you got to stand up for yourself. So when I, when I grew up, you had to stand up for yourself and kind of fight <coughs> fight, uh, fight, fight your own battles. And these guys picked a fight. So, you know, I said, all right, well, it might take a couple of years to finish it, but we'll finish it. That's just kind of 
kind of, you know, part of who I am, what I, and how I think, and how I grew up. So that has a lot to do. Even at the risk of losing your own career, possibly your life or the life of your family members, and knowing just how corrupt this system that's meant to be in place to protect people like us, uh, boy, I give you some serious kudos because that just seems uh, the move of a madman to, to continue to go at, at war for it. And I'm thankful that people like you do exist that are willing to shine this light because, you know, we should be aware of, of just how bad things are. Talk to me about when we talk about how bad and corrupt, specifically what type of things were going on that, that were being hidden or, or continue to be hidden that that we should know about. Well, I think the basic premise that things that are being uncovered is that D.C. elites use these folks, the intelligence agencies, as their own private um, CIA, their own private FBI, to do what they want to harass who they want to have harassed and to uh, spy on who they want to, who they want spied on. And I think that's what's been uh, uncovered in, in, in recent months, and I think it's going to get a lot worse. So... Uh, you come to find out that these folks that are taxpayer-funded, uh, FBI, CIA, a lot of a lot of other agencies, are actually, um, like you had mentioned earlier, they're not working in the private uh, interest. Uh, they're not working in the public's interest. They're they're turned inside out, and they're used as um, as tools by the D.C. elite. And in my case, I mean, it's pretty evident what happened. So, people that were offended at what we were snooping around looking at. Um, you know, use it as retaliation, but it would—it it wouldn't be that big of a deal if it didn't happen to a lot of other people. And, and in recent news articles and a recent uh, unfolding uh, news and recent events on TV, uh, Fox News and newspapers, it's pretty evident that they target a lot of people. Whenever they have a problem with somebody, they go to work and they try to pull their life apart. You know, tear their life down. It's not really what the uh, Constitution and what the laws of this country were formulated to do. Um, so now, when your life is invaded uh, in this way, what was it that you knew, or what was it that you were on the trail of that would cause them to to become this aggressive towards you? Well, that's a good question. So we started snooping around. We heard a lot of rumors from DC. We did a lot of political opposition research for people in DC. We worked for a lot of different people, a lot of congressmen, a lot of senators and we got wind that um osama bin laden was tucked away in iran at the same time that the government said that he was living in a dingy cave in afghanistan and everybody the uh, military apparatus of the united states was over there searching for him he had soldiers over in afghanistan searching for him but um they were really ignoring tips that he was in iran and uh, when i say ignoring tips i mean high-ranking people were getting actionable intelligence that he was in Iran, and they weren't doing anything about it. So that's what we started snooping around about, and uh, that, that's what got me into trouble. And that's what, when I wrote the book a couple months ago, that was the focus of the book. I said, well, let's go back to 2007 when all this stuff started, 2008. Let's go back and talk to our sources about um, Iran and bin Laden, and, and that's pretty much what the book was about, how I got into trouble then. We were able to find out subsequently in the last year or so that there was a lot of truth to that. And we have people on record with the government, and a congressman, and, and so forth in the book that spells it out. So, and, you know, what you said earlier about being in danger and things like that, 
you're more in danger if you keep your mouth shut. Like if you go public with this kind of stuff, you're actually safer uh, because they you become less of a target. Um, so that's one of the reasons we put the book out, and we did troop on it because we wanted to say, hey, you know, we're not going to hide hide anything. We're going to go right at these people. So here's the problem you, you mentioned earlier. We've become kind of this desensitized civilization where we almost turn a blind eye to the atrocities that our own government and our own agencies are doing to our own people. Well, By government blowing. and agencies, certain people on movies you know, that we really like, they can, you know, brutalize a hooker and we're like, uh, right, sports yeah, but figures. I really want to watch that movie they made. Right. But but in the case of, of politics and government and, and the, the groups that are supposed to be there protecting us and watching over us, if there's guys like you out there blowing the whistles, what is actually being done? Is anything being dismantled and being taken apart so that this corruption stops? Or does it just continue in a different way? It might be too big to fix at this point without major overhauls of... Um a place like the FBI might need to be broken into different pieces and spun off with different agencies. Um, I think the FBI has gotten too big and too powerful, and and I think that uh, including parts of the Department of Justice, I think without a major reform, nothing will really be fixed because there's institutionalized people <coughs> working there for years that have a certain political ideologies that they use. Um, whatever they can to further their, their political their viewpoints, you know, whether it's fair or unfair, not really, um, not but, really the barometer anymore. But you just you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, it needs to be, it needs to be broken up, and and we need to drain the swamps, which has been said over and over by everybody, but nothing really happens. This isn't going to take place. Do you think that's? People are disaffected by it now because they realize just how powerless we truly are. I don't know. You know, people have busy lives, and uh, they're very. We're we're all very busy. We have the kids, and you're running around. You're worrying about the job, and you're worried about everything else, and sports, and activities, and um, so. And, and and don't forget, you know, a lot of people say, uh, claim that there's a. a recession is in the recovery. You know, a lot of people I know are still kind of just making ends meet, you know? So uh, when your finances are, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, that kind of is very consuming with uh, your thoughts and your focus. So, you know, there's a, people are distracted, just naturally distracted. And, and to have the focus to even think about this or make noise about this, it's kind of, uh, I don't know if it's a monumental, like a monumental task to try to, Try to get everybody, uh, you know, fired up about it. I think people are distracted, and and I think the people in D.C., uh, the elites, they take advantage of that distraction as much as they can. You know, they you're they right. Want, they say, oh, people, people are stupid. They're not paying attention, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that they're stupid; it's that they're busy. And if the policies in this country worked, where people were doing better economically, they'd have more time to. Fund. It's like anything. If you're doing right. well, and 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 the money's doing well and you're doing well economically then you have time to focus on other stuff or people continue to turn a blind eye because it's why if it if it ain't broke why fix it um thomas mike thomas Payne moore the book is called Payne: how we dismantled the fbi in our pajamas we will uh, make sure a link is up there for the book thank you so much for joining us today 
Okay, guys. Thanks, man. Take care. Thank you. Have a great day. That's it for me. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the Tom Bernard Show.